Welcome to episode 305 of the Tennis Files podcast, a Q&A session with a 17-time Grand Slam champion with Gigi Fernandez. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, I hope you're all doing well and playing a lot of tennis and improving your game. For today's episode, I am bringing you a really fun Q&A session that I had with legendary 17-time Grand Slam champion Gigi Fernandez that we did a little while back, and uh, she answered audience questions on strategy, the mental game, injuries, meditation, visualization, technique, and more. So uh, definitely a really valuable session that I think you'll really enjoy. It's always amazing to get advice from uh, people who have performed at the most elite levels of the sport, and then Gigi is also doing a ton of coaching right now as well. So I definitely think you'll get a lot out of this one. And so without further ado, here's my discussion with 17-time Grand Slam champ, Gigi Fernandez. So good to see you again, Gigi. How are you? Great to be here. Took a while, literally. Sorry about the little delay. We had technical issues. Oh, yeah, no worries. It always happens, so it's no biggie. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so nice to see you. And yeah, I just want to reiterate how much fun I had um, seeing you a couple weeks ago at TennisCon Live in Tampa, beautiful Innisbrook Resort. It was so cool. So um, Super fun, just, yeah. Yeah, like great job to you and Leslie and all the coaches. Um, yeah, and the group was just amazing. And I, I see a lot of them actually in the live streams and they emailed me and stuff for the summit. So it was, it was really cool. That's great. Yeah. Happy yeah, to hear definitely. that. Thanks a lot. Um, let's see. We got some comments in. Gordon, hi, Gigi. Hey, Gordon. Um, oh, so Gordon had a little r- rough patch here. He said... I played a final a week ago and was one set all, then my calf popped. Ouch. Bizarrely, oh. I hit. Yeah, he said, bizarrely, I hit the zone and won the next 24 points. The ball seemed slow and big. What can I learn from Wait, hitting? Wait, with the, the calf zone? popped? How, how does that work? I don't work? know how your calf pops <laughs> and you don't go straight to the ER. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. So, I've had like a calf straight. Go ahead. Yeah. So it wasn't a pop. It was just like strained. Okay. So what is the question? How, what is this? What can I learn from hitting the zone? Just get in as much as possible. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, the key is how to get in the zone, right? And, um, and the, it seems like this elusive thing that all, all players try to get into like the zone, right? But there, if you, if you have done any work on the mental game or anybody who has done a work on the mental game, knows that there's really a, some defined steps that you have to take to give yourself the best opportunity to get in the zone. You might or might not get in the zone, but if you don't take these steps, there's no way you're ever going to get in it. You know, and some of these things include your pre-match preparation. It's very important. Like how, what are you doing before your matches? Um, what are you doing the night before, the morning of? How are you preparing yourself uh, mentally for the battle? Um, 
also your routines and your rituals. What what kinds of things are you doing um, on a consistent basis between the points? Your self-talk is important, getting you in the zone. Um, so, you know, obviously your game, you know, from the physical perspective, your game has to be at a certain level for you to be able to flow freely and not have to think so much about the technical part of your game. I always tell players, once they're in match mode, you know, competing, keeping score in a match that counts, that they should not be thinking about technique, that they should not be mm-hmm. worrying about um, the, you know, the swing path or if they're hitting the ball early or late and, and just kind of worry more about how to win the point and your thoughts really should revolve around what you have to do to, to try to win points and not so much why your ball went you know, six inches long. Yeah, and I th- I think some people might have the perception that being in the zone is just like a state where you like you're not even like thinking at all. Um, but I mean, is that true? I mean, because you mentioned like you know that self talk is important. So I guess um, is is that right that you are still doing the self talk? You're still talking about or telling yeah. yourself you know what I need to do on each point. So I mean, anybody who's ever tried to meditate or just quiet your mind knows how impossible it is to not have thoughts. Like our brain is not designed to not think unless you're sleeping, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and then if you're sleeping, then you're not aware. Um, but the, the key is controlling the thoughts that you have while you're playing and not letting that sort of voice in your head bring you down because our we are inherently pro- programmed to fail, right? Our, our mind wants to bring to shoot us down and make us fail. So unless you have some techniques and tactics do not let it, it will. So I always had this sort of dual personality in my brain where I was always, always fighting. Gigi was always fighting Beatrice, right? And it was always like, mm. who's going to win? Good Gigi or bad Beatrice, right? So, uh, you know, whatever name you give your two voices, but everybody has two voices and, and the key is to not let the bad voice win. Yeah, I'm going to give my alter ego the name peter freeman uh let's see see. (laughs) he was giving me some stick during ryan's uh uh, live stream anyway but now he's we love him um let's see so we have i forgot if i read these out yeah jennifer hi from puerto rico um yeah great to see you again sherry hello from miss mrs suaga i don't know if i pronounce that right um good to see you uh angel prepping dinner early dinner wow where are you at (laughs) <laughs> um, I have my top spin probe out back. Thanks, Ryan. Cool. Nice. Hmm. Um, Gordon, thanks. Haven't played since uh, physiotherapist orders. It was a weird and freaky out-of-body experience. Went back 25 years. Interesting, though. Wow. Very, very interesting. And yes, the calf popped. Oh, wow. The zone oh, wow. is astonishing. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, done lots of work on mental game as a GG devotee. That's smart. Devoting yourself to the right things here. Um, Bill, hey, Marabon and Gigi, back home in North Carolina, finally. Awesome. Do we have questions? And, uh, <laughs> There's Pete. I'm sure There's... Pete can come up with a question or a Marabon. Yeah, <laughs> an actual question, Pete. Not just trolling me. Um, don't think of technique or score. and play things back there. So we don't have any quite yet, but I think people are streaming in. I see their numbers keep rising, so... Gigi, I guess in terms of the mental game again, um, what's one of the biggest changes or adjustments you had to make from maybe before you were on the tour to like then like 
a few years after, maybe there's something big that you learned, like mentally speaking, that like helped you a lot when you changed that. Well, I mean, I think what I can talk about, not so much after, but really what I did that caused the change in my career to, you know, where I was, I've been playing for five years and not won a Grand Slam and, um, and then one more two and seven years into my career, one more and two. And then I also won one fourteen and pretty much in a row. I'm in five years, I won 14 Grand Slams. It was uh, almost three per year. Um, and what I did was two things that were critical. The first one was I learned to meditate. And I learned um, diaphragmatic breathing. So I learned how to mm. breathe from the diaphragm. And that breathing really, really deep, which I know Maran, you're an expert at, uh, <laughs> really relaxes you and, and increases blow flow in, uh, to your muscles. So you get less tired, less lactic acid buildup, lowers your heart rate, lowers your blood pressure. And anybody can practice diaphragmatic breathing. If you Google diaphragmatic breathing, they'll, you, know, they'll, you can read all kinds of uh, people talking about how to actually use your diaphragm, which is the bottom of your, of your, in the bottom of your lungs. Right now, when we're breathing, we're using a third of our, our lungs, shallow breathing. But when you play a match, you have to do these really, really deep breaths or not say when you're playing the match, but on the changeovers and before matches and all to try to get you to, or you myself or the person doing it to stay calm because what's really hard in tennis, um, it's a fine motor sport, right? So it's it's uh, little changes in your muscles and your the tightness of your hand or your tightness of your shoulder will affect the direction of the ball. So you're really trying to stay relaxed and try to you know stay calm, and and that's where the, the breathing came in. And then the second part was the which was even more powerful was the learning how to meditate, because when I learn how to meditate, when you meditate, you sit. In, in a quiet space for 20 minutes and you repeat a mantra or you can just repeat your breath going in and out to so you. So you, your thoughts would be, you know, as you're breathing in, breathe in, breathe out, and you just keep repeating that if you don't have a mantra. But what you'll find is that pretty much 20 seconds into it, your mind has gone off and it's now thinking about the grocery list and the got to pick up the kids and I have a lesson tomorrow and you know, all the things that's on our to-do list that are constantly in our brains that we can't get our minds off. Um, and, you know, at first I would get really mad at myself because I couldn't focus for 20 minutes. And it was like, okay, how can I not focus for 20? How am I going to play a two hour match if I can't focus for 20 minutes? And I would get really pissed off and, you know, slowly but surely I started to learn how to bring my mind back to, to the mantra and, and could sustain the mantra a little bit longer. I could go minutes at a time, maybe. And also, if you get really technical, like the gurus or person who taught me this, uh, they or they claim that the space between repeating the mantra, so that that little nanosecond between repeating one mantra and starting the next, is where your mind is quiet and your mind is at ease and your mind is at peace. So you reach this level of I don't know what you call it, like nirvana, I guess, nirvana. or whatever. And it sounds very esoteric, but in reality, what it did for me was that it taught me how to change one thought for another without judgment or emotion. So I, I learned how to remove emotions from my thoughts. And that, that's a very important skill in, you know, in life, but particularly in sports, because the biggest detractor of peak performance are your thoughts and what you tell yourself. Yeah. So if I could, you know, and for me, I'm, I was very passionate and 
combust. I had combustible <laughs> temper. You know, I could just really explode. Really? And yeah, hmm. I did. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I know. You know, and a lot of people don't know that. Like, yeah, yeah. Really follow my career, you wouldn't know that. So, yeah. so to learn how to control those thoughts and and you know change that anger thought for another one was was really powerful. And I fully claim, I fully claim meditation to have you know been the biggest influence in my career because I went from learning to meditate and practice yeah. practicing diaphragmatic breathing, which was April of 1992. And I won the French Open in May, Wimbledon in July, the Olympic gold medal in August, US Open in September, the championships in November, and the Australian Open in January, and probably three other regular tour tournaments, and all within a six period of of uh, learning how to meditate. So so yeah, if you're not, you know, if you're a hyper player or if you have busy mind or if you have um you tend to over get overly excitable or you type A general type A personality, this would be very valuable for you. Interestingly enough, um this meaning learning to meditate would be very valuable for you. But interestingly enough, um Martina, when I went to learn to meditate, I was with Martina and Billie Jean King. They actually invited me to the Deepak Chopra Center. And I asked Martina Martina did one of my camps. I do camps with other legends. And when I, I shared this with her, with the group, not this whole long story, but I shared part of it with her. And she said for her, it didn't work because when she, she got too calm and she got too mellow. Mm. So she felt like she needed to get mad and she needed to get angry. So she plays better angry. So interesting. Like it's not clear, obviously not for everybody, but for me, it really worked. Yeah, it's definitely incredible how much that can help you refocus. And yeah, I mean, med- meditating, you know, especially as part of a daily routine in the morning or whenever is is really helpful right. just for all all facets. It's amazing. So yeah, the um, questions are streaming in now. So that's great. Uh, let's see, Philip, as a high school coach, how do I get my player to get past the negative mindset when he steps up in competition? So, you know, I... Generally speaking, athletes are very competitive. Obviously, we're all competitive. So the way I framed that was I was in competition with the other me, right? So so I don't know what your athlete's name is, but come up with an ulterior name or a, some name. You know, Beatrice is my given name, which I don't like. Um, Gigi was the, you know, the badass Grand Slam champion. And so I was always battling Gigi and Beatrice and who, who I who I wanted to win, obviously, I wanted G- we, I want Gigi to win. We they all we all want to do well. It's just that we have this other person bringing us down. So I always felt like I never wanted to lose twice. I didn't want to lose the match and lose the mental battle against my opponent that was in my head. So if you could at least win the mental battle with the opponent in your head, you have a and you lose the match, you're going to feel better about yourself. But chances are that you're going to give yourself a, a better chance of winning if if you can try to beat the. So you also turn the focus away from winning the match for your athlete. Instead of the focus being on winning the match, it's like, okay, for the next match, I don't care if you win or lose, but I want you to beat your mind. I want you to come off the court and say, okay, I, I beat my mind. My mind didn't beat me today. And if that happens, then over time, you'll, stop, you'll start winning matches. Awesome. Love that advice. So good. Let's see what we have next. Uh, <laughs> have you met Ricky Martin from Puerto Rico? um i'm trying to think of it i probably have but it oh i did i'm sorry yes i did i went to his concert um in orlando i don't know how many years ago 15 years ago and i went backstage and took a picture with him and uh, met his kids yeah it was super fun big fan yeah yeah great music 
Very lively. Oh, Pete again, my alter ego. Tell the don't worry, be happy story. Uh, uh, I really? Okay. So, <laughs> okay. So, um, so 1988 US Open, I've been playing tennis for four years and I was going to quit. I was unhappy. I was losing, obviously, you know, the, the thing is I, I had a fairly successful junior career, meaning I was number one in the country or in Puerto Rico in my age group, two above. I didn't lose very much. I was lucky that I got a scholarship to play at Clemson University. Um, I played my first freshman year in college. I lost two matches all year. And then I went to NCAAs and I made the finals. Lost in the third set tiebreaker, seven, six in the third. And then I turned pro. And what happens when you turn pro? You lose every single week. Singles lost, doubles lost. Lose, 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 lose. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I, I wasn't used to losing. I didn't know how to lose. I, I didn't understand that losing were learning experiences. So I got to the 88 US Open and I, that was going to be my last grand slam. I told my, my agent, I've, I think I've run my course. It's five years. I'm, you know, I miss my family. I want to be a doctor. So I'm going to move on and wow. do something else. So he says, okay, before you do that, why don't you go meet Dr. Jim Lair? So I met Dr. Lair and uh, I spent two or three weeks or four, I don't know how long, working with him the summer leading up to the US Open. So he said, we did two things. The first one was he asked, he taught me what to do with the 25 seconds between points. And that's obviously very important. What your thoughts are between points, because 84% of the time we're playing, we're not playing a point. So that's when we're in our head. Uh, and then the second thing he said was, can, do you know how to act? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you, you know, I don't, what do you want me to do? And Oddly enough, my great uncle was Jose Ferrer, who won an Academy Award in the 1950s for Best, best Supporting Actors in a, in a movie. So maybe I had the acting gene and I didn't know it. And he said, OK, I want you to act like you're having fun. I know you hate tennis and I know at the end of this Grand Slam, you're going to retire and that's fine. I support it, but let's just fool the crowd. Let's fool everybody that's watching you. And I want them to look at you and say and see, wow, that girl's really having fun. I said, OK, I'll try it. So I go go play the first match. I win that six, four and a third. And I come off the court and he says, did you have any fun? And I said, no, I didn't. It was six, four and a third is stressful. So he said, okay, try it in the next match. So I tried it in the next match, won that, tried it in the next match, won that, tried it in the next match, won that. And now we're playing in the semifinals of the US Open against the best team in the history of tennis, who is Martina, who, of course, Martina Navratilova and Pam Schreiber with 21 Grand Slams. So more Grand Slams as a team than any other male or female combination. So we really had no chance. Um, but the song of the time was Don't Worry, Be Happy. And we that's sort of why Pete said that. So we kept singing this song throughout the tournament and before the matches and during you know the changeovers. We were all we just thinking, Don't worry, be happy. And I kept pretending like I was having fun. And we won. We beat them six three in the third. And I come off the court and Jim says, Are you having fun now? And I'm like, You guess I'm having fun. I'm in the finals of the US Open. So I won the US Open. Um, we won that my first Grand Slam, tricking my mind into thinking that I was actually having fun. So that was really the first time that I thought, wow, if I could just figure this out, I mm. could have a career. So it was really uh, life changing. Yeah. That's incredible. I was on the precipice of of quitting and look yeah. what you did. Sick. You know, it's funny, like in, in my life, I don't know if you've had this experience, Miran or not, or people listening, but I've always found that in life, in my life, whenever I was in, in the cusp, when I was like in my worst moments, like something awful seemed to should be happening, great things would come after. 
like this is one example of that. Like I, I was going to quit. It was my lowest point ever. And then I went at Grand Slam. The other example in my career was um, the 94 Wimbledon. I got to the 94 Wimbledon and I had lost nine straight first round singles matches. So I hadn't won a match wow. all year. And I got to, um, I was number 99 in the world and I was the last person to get in the main draw. And I made it to the semis of the singles. <laughs> my best, my best uh, Grand Slam result ever. So if you're going through a rough patch or you know not in a great space right now, something good is uh, on the other side, and you just got to hang in there and keep plugging away. You know, life is long and has all ups and downs, and uh, the only thing we can't overcome is death. So until that point, you just keep going, and things turn around, and whatever you're going through passes. This too shall pass is one of my favorite lines, and. Um, we just continue, continue on. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great story. I mean, I, I could share one too. It's actually has to do with the summit. Like in 2019, like I, I went through like a, a breakup, like during prep for the summit, like, and it was, was like a six year relationship. So, and oh. and it was actually like, I feel like being so busy for the summit and other stuff, but maybe it was a cause of it. So then I was like, I almost didn't do it that year. I was like, forget it, like whatever. But then I said, no, you know, like people are expecting it. So I did it and like it did pretty well. And then like the next year, like it exploded and like the numbers all went up and stuff like that. So uh, that was a tough time, but you know, just got to push through. So um, yeah. I, yeah. So y'all have to remember these things like when you're in, in tough times. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let's see, Sherry. I had that experience with an injury too. It happened and I blacked out for a tiny short while. That's crazy. Glad you're still with us. <laughs> David, I had one time when I was in the zone and then went out. The problem time then was it took me to, too long to realize I was out and lost too many points before I realized it. Huh. Interesting. So let me make a point about medical timeouts because I just had this experience. Medical timeouts are allowed on any competitive match. You can always take, I'm right. pretty sure, a league USDA matches. You can always take a medical timeout. I was just playing... And and that other sport that some tennis players are now playing on Monday at the U.S. Open in Naples. Mm. Mm. Which sport might that be, right? And in the semifinals, I cramped. Uh, I started to cramp. And I have this product called Cramps Away, which is a little packet yeah. that you take. And, yeah, and it yeah, stops like, the cramp, right? But yeah. instead of taking the medical timeout, I just took the, the cramps away and I kept playing. And I was not – I was – concerned because I kept feeling like I'm going to cramp. And so I wasn't moving. I was focusing on not cramping as opposed to playing. So really, I should have taken the medical time out. I should have taken, you know, five, 10 minutes to mm. let the product absorb, drink some water, get sort of rehydrated, you know, and go back. So we ended up losing the match, but then came around and won bronze. So I could play two more matches after starting to crop, which normally once you cramp, you're done. Um, so, so the advice is if you ever feel like you're starting to cram, just take the medical time out. Don't, don't play through it because you can rehydrate, take pills, take cramps away or whatever product you're using, um, to help you don't fight through it. Yeah. Don't be stubborn yeah. like I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it helped you in a lot of ways in some ways, you know, uh, you learn yeah. from it, but, um, yeah, that's so funny. You mentioned cramps away. I, I had James Blake on the summit a few years ago and it was part of like a, you know, cramps away brand as well. We had the yeah. CEO, I think there. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it's a cool product. It's funny because I, I never cramped when I was playing. I never had cramping issues, but I think when you age wow. is more, it's more prominent. Um, mm. Your body composition changes and you're more likely to prone as you age. So just another great thing about getting old. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, Got to find different ways. You get wiser, though. So that's, that's true. <laughs> uh, Steve, hello, Mirabon GG. Hello to you, Steve. Angel, so your teammate is really struggling with their shot selections during a match, i.e. low percentage shots, outs- outside of cheering that them on, I think. What suggestions do you have to reel that person in? Yeah, so... Um... You know, it really shows shot selection in tennis. So the question is, are they missing? From what I'm reading, they're missing because they're trying low percent shots. So really, you shouldn't be trying low percent shots. So that's the problem. It's like having a conversation with him beforehand. It's like, why are you trying these shots? Like, I didn't mm-hmm. try low percent shots. I didn't win 17 grand slams by trying low percent shots. I can promise you that. Like, you know, anytime a, a tennis player hits the ball, they have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight choices, depending on your skill level. I had probably six or seven choices every time the ball came. And the, the true the true discipline or the true edge that players have is making the right choice. It's not executing the shot. You know, we are, we're going to execute the shots. Everybody's going to make shots and miss shots. But it's really the choice of the shot you're trying to make that's going to win you the matches. So it's probably, you know, having a conversation with them about, First of all, do they understand what is low percentage? A lot of people don't have a clue that the shot they try to is low percentage. Like I, sometimes I'm, I just laugh when I do my cams because I'll I'll see a person trying a shot and I'm like, did you just try to hit a high drop volley angle in front, like down the line from above your shoulders, standing on the service line? They're like, yeah. I'm like, I wouldn't try that shot. A, yeah. a downline drop shot angle from a volley above your waist, like low yeah. percentage. You're gonna make it one out of a thousand times. I'll make it one out of ten, which is too low for me, anyway. So, so really, first understanding what is high percentage, and really in doubles, the ball should be crossing the middle window, which is if you if you divide the net into thirds, the ball should be going through the middle third ninety eight percent of the time. Ninety eight percent of the time, the ball should be going. Mm through the middle third of the net when you're playing doubles. So tell them to stop. <laughs> Just draw a window there as they go from here to here, put the ball through there, and your doubles game is going to improve right away. Yeah, definitely, Gigi. And I guess, you know, when you were communicating with your partners, and, and you know, I'm sure at some point maybe they, yeah, they were having uh, making these mistakes, like, I guess, were you like, did you say it to them straightforwardly, like, hey, like, you should stop doing this because i guess no maybe okay okay yeah because i was wondering yes. like yeah the communication so yeah so so first of all you can never tell somebody to stop doing something right because if you say don't do fall you're gonna do fall yeah, if you think- say don't <laughs> hit it down the line they're gonna hit down yeah. the line and you always want to communicate in plural right so it's always like i would always say we need to do this so mm. so i would say on the next shot okay on the next two shots okay in the next two points that we play let's hit every ball through the middle both of us so and I, and I always did it in twos because then it took pressure off. So if I say to my partner, "We got to win the next point," that's pressure. But if I say to my partner, "Let's win one out of the next two points," all right, then either you win your point or I have to win my point. Now we've I've divided the pressure between the two of us. I didn't put pressure on her to win the next point, and that was very that was how I always communicate. And I played the ad side, right? So it was always okay. It's deuce. Let's win one of the next two points. If you win your, if I say win your points, so I, so I can get a, a break point. That's pressure. But it, but if we win one of the next two points, it's still deuce, right? You win yours, I win mine. It's deuce. You win your, right? You win. now, but if she wins hers, then now I got a chance to to break. Yeah. But if I say to her, let's win this point, that's pressure. 
right? So always communicate in plural and always give commands that are uh, in a positive frame. Never don't do anything. It's always do this instead. Ooh, it's so good. Yeah, I have a, a friend, um, Kendra, I'll shout her out, but she was telling me how she had an issue with a partner, um, you know, kind of going for low percentage shots. So uh, definitely we're going to tell her this advice uh, if she's yeah. not on the stream anyway. Uh, let's see, Alfred. Hi, I've got arthritis in my right middle finger of all things. Can't grip the racket properly. Hmm. Oh, what do you, any thoughts on that? Hmm. My right middle, middle finger. finger. You know, it's funny because really when you, when you, when you pull up and get my racket, when you play sure. tennis, um, you really grip with these two fingers, these two fingers and these two fingers. Right. So the, in this finger really is not doing much. Like if you hold, if you hold the racket with the knuckle part and the thumb part, and then put the hand around it, like I could play tennis with my finger straight up. Mm. That finger is not doing anything like these fingers are, are doing a lot. They're, they're gripping, they're adjusting the grip, but that index finger. So, I mean, not to minimize your injury, but if of all the fingers that you don't use in, in tennis, that would be the one to not be so so perhaps so concerned about so try to squeeze more with the other fingers yeah yeah no great advice awesome um let's see sherry meditation is not that hard although it is tough to refocus sometimes but uh plus it can help you focus on everything around you without needing to restrict your focus onto just one element even helps you gain pre precognition abilities yeah but it's hard though i mean yeah <laughs> You're probably a know. master guru, Sherry. You're I know, like right? Sen master, right? But it is hard to focus on one thing for 20 minutes. At least it is. It, it is for me, or it was for me at first. And even it's funny now because you know sometimes I'm when I'm going through really stressful periods, um, I'll remember. Okay, I need to meditate. And I was on a plane. I was on a plane once, and it was appeared like it was there was a lot of turbulence, and I was really nervous about it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to meditate. So I started to meditate, and and. Probably, and I set my timer for 20 minutes. You're supposed to set a timer. Yeah. I set my timer for 20 minutes and I started to meditate. And then all of a sudden, you know, I started to read, watch a movie, eat, look at my computer, and the, and the, and the timer went off. I'm like, oh my God, I was supposed to be meditating. Oh, uh, what a session. So, yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah. But then that was the first time I'd done it in years. You know, once you get in the mm. groove of it, it's a little bit easier to. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I agree. It's it it can be very I, I, I guess from the standpoint of like, you know, you just like sit somewhere or, or cross your legs, whatever like it's easy to to initiate at least make like yourself do it, it, yes. Yeah. But yeah, to actually so. do it well is what yeah. can sometimes be a little challenging. Yeah. I mean it's it's very cool though. I mean, now they have all these apps, um like Headspace. I use that and Calm as well. I've used yeah. that. Um those are nice and there's many others. Let's see. Macy, is there a good exercise that duplicates playing tennis? So if you can't play, at least you can keep your level of fitness high. What oh, stuff did you see, do? It's funny. I was going, I was going to go to the, on the to visualization, but then you, the last bit of the question threw me because yeah. keep your fitness high, but it would keep your tennis sharp. If you, you can visualize playing tennis, mm. you just watch yourself hit shots and, with your eyes closed. And you know, the, the mind doesn't know the difference between, perception and reality like you can close your eyes and think you're in center court Wimbledon if you've actually been there and you and you can be a center court Wimbledon and your brain thinks the same it feels the same it acts the same right you can trick your brain into pretending like you're there so you mm -hmm. can practice forehands and practice backhands um in your mind 
Um, but to keep fit, uh, I I like pickleball. You know, I mm. you know tennis is very anaerobic. It's you can't go for a run; doesn't help you. Um, you can do the peloton as long as you're doing like interval work interval. where your your heart's going up and your heart's going down. If you're gonna go for a jog, like run thirty yards or fifty yards, walk twenty seconds, run yes. thirty yards, walk twenty seconds, run thirty yards, walk. So you sort of replicate the match rhythm, which is a burst and then you have a 20 second break a burst and you have a 20 second break but really the best way is to play tennis um and wait let's see so if you can't yeah so yeah. so that, so that's my advice um the stairmaster if they still have stairmasters i don't know that's what i used to do i, I was i love the stairmaster because it was non-impact but pickleball i mean pickleball is the most the sport that most closely resembles um <clears throat> excuse me i have to mute myself oh no worries yeah i have a good idea of, of what well I'll, I'll jump in right now as well yeah, um, yeah, go yeah sorry yeah so i don't want to ruin <laughs> you know dr mark kovacs's presentation but you definitely want to check it out uh, out on on saturday we also did a, a live stream with him actually on monday night but um he talks about the biggest misconceptions around tennis fitness for adult players and he specifically covers um tennis specific endurance so i mean he basically does say that you know Tennis is the best <laughs> playing tennis is the best way to like train for tennis. But but besides that, you want to do intervals because if you think about it, you know, you you rest the re the rest to playing ratio is somewhere around like four to one or three to one. So you want to kind of replicate that because if you look at a tennis match, you have like, you know, your heart rate goes very high and then it goes significantly lower and then it'll go high again and low. So I mean, interval training, as Gigi said, is going to be your best bet in terms of like uh, training if, if you're not doing tennis or, you know, pickleball, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And then one thing to add to that, if you want to test it to see how you're actually doing time, how long it takes for a heart rate to get back down. So yeah. um, depending on your age, this is hard to measure for everybody, but like say that your max heart rate is 150 and you're like out of the, you know, can't play. And when your heart rate's 100, you're okay. You, you can play. Then measure how long it takes for your heart to get from 150 to 100. And it should be taking 20 seconds. If, it take, if it's taking longer than that, you know, you're going to start a point with your heart rate up. You're going to be in trouble, right? So, so that's the, you know, the true, true measure of fitness for a tennis player is, first of all, how endurance, how, you know, how long can you go? Can you go three hours? But how quickly is your heart rate dropping? So that when you start the next point, you're not starting from an elevated heart rate. Yeah. Yeah. Great point, sir. Let's see. You got a lot of questions here. Um, Jennifer, how do you manage distractions from the sidelines, like um, watching people who are watching you? Good question. Okay. So yeah. a couple of things there. First of all, I used to, I used to play tennis in a bubble. So once I went on the court, there was this bubble around the court and anything that happened was outside the bubble. So those things, they tried to get into my sphere, right? But I would kind of fight them off, right? I would just be like, that's out there and, I, and I'm in here. And I'm not, I'm going to try not to focus on that. I always, yeah. sometimes I use the, the boundaries of the court to, you know, get back into concentration. Because when you, when you um, go into changeovers, of course, in tennis, you're, you have a changeover where your concentration stops. Generally, it should stop. You should relax and a changeover. You shouldn't be thinking about the match so much, right? So once you, for me, it was once I crossed into the court. So once I crossed the alley line, then I was 
concentrating on the match again. See what else. Uh, oh, and then the last thing is I used to have this thing called the little black box. And the little black box was this box in my head that was made of steel and had a clamp. And whatever thoughts I had that I didn't want to have went in the box. So people trying to distract me from the outside or saying things or the fans or my coach saying the wrong thing or ball kids giving me the balls wrong or the bat line calls or or it could be things like life things like my best friend's wife died during the French Open one year my grandmother passed away all these during the championships one year so all these things would go in the box and and I wouldn't let the contents of the box affect me except for at the end of the match when the match ended then I would go back and examine what was in the box like what was upsetting me and then i would allow myself to have the emotion after the match so i so i just say put it in the box clamp it shut and and don't let it affect you <clears throat> all right it's great great mental techniques awesome uh john got around but love gg next time yes hey so john oh john john came to camp john and Mary yeah that's right yeah, yeah yeah definitely check the replay out uh, Philip, thank you. You're welcome. Um, great stuff. Uh, Sherry, totally agree. Focus on your goals and you'll win every time. Winning isn't always victory in the match. That's true. True. And the goal um, should never be to win. I always tell players, yeah. what's your goal to win? No, it can't be because winning happens on match point. What are you going to do between now and match point to achieve that? To achieve your goals. What are your goals that are going to help you, help you win the match? Not winning shouldn't be the goal exactly exactly hit deeper you know more for serve stuff like that right awesome uh, angel what are some of the strategies you discuss with your teammate prior to any doubles match with your team okay so first of all it depends on if it's a new person or somebody you've been playing with you know the first thing if it's somebody you never played with to physical and mental right the physical things are what side do you like? Do you like the forehand, the backhand? What's your strength? What's your weakness? You're going to want to have those discussions. Generally, in doubles, you want the stronger ground strokes on the outside. Those stronger forehand plays to do, stronger backhand plays the at. And you want the stronger volleys in the middle or, or it's, let's say, weaker volleys on the outside. So if somebody has a really weak backhand volley, you put that in the, you put them on the outside so the backhand volleys in the alley because you're not going to hit a lot of backhand volleys there. Gotcha. And then from the mental side, you want to know, you want to know what kind of person they are. Like, do they like to talk? Do they not like to talk? What kind of encouragement do they want? Are they, some people don't want advice from you. Most people don't want advice from their partner. You know, it's like tennis is an individual sport. Like it is a team in doubles, but there's really nothing you can do to help your partner play better. I always say that, but you, there's a lot you can do to make him play worse, right? But there's things you say. So all you can do really is, um, be encouraging and you know and and uh be positive with them and 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 then also you need to have plans right what's your plan a plan b like they at minimum need to know are you serving and volleying or serving and staying back do you like to return and come in or you like are you going to return and stay back mm -hmm. um communication between points is important in that sense because you want to know what what their plan is you know and find your strengths um hopefully you have two plans maybe three plan a plan b sometimes you need plan d i didn't i didn't have to get to plan d often but sometimes that we did so you have to have all different plans there i always tell players like <clears throat> every team if you're playing somebody of your similar level like i mean if you have 3-0 playing a 4-0 you're probably not going to win right i mean it's not a fair match yeah. Um, but most people have a solution most opponents have a solution because everybody has weaknesses right I mean, if if at the pro level we can find weaknesses, 
then everybody has them. You just have to find them and exploit them. So it's uh, doubles is a very strategic game, and I don't think people know enough about doubles to understand that part of it or spend enough time thinking about it. Um, you know about <clears throat> that part of the game, but it is highly strategic and tactical. <clears throat> yeah, very much so. That's what makes it yeah. fun. Uh, let's see, Philip. Oh my goodness, I love Jose Ferrer. Absolutely magnificent in Cyrano uh, and the Kane. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Very cool. Uh, Jason, what are some poaches do's and don'ts? Poaches do's and don'ts. Good question. Okay, so poaching is interesting because I don't know um, how old. Who is it? Oh, Jason. Jason. I don't know. Jason Bourne. Is that his name? I, well, yeah, actually, this I don't is know hysterical. <laughs> I even read truly not Jason Bourne. Oh my mm. god. <laughs> um, okay, so the the really the timing of the poach. Okay, first of all, poaching is a physics problem. We have two moving objects and an interception point. The ball's moving, you're moving, and the interception point is somewhere over there. So, depending on your velocity and the velocity of the ball and where the ball is, you know, with the trajectory of the ball, this could be unsolvable. Like the ball's moving too fast, you're too slow, and the poaching spot is too far away, right? Or it could be very poachable. The ball comes right to you, you hit it. But the reality is that. You know, or before I tell you the reality, the the when you start your poach, the optimal uh, moment to start your poach is when your opponent has started their forward motion into the ball, because at this point it's very difficult to change your mind uh, on your shot or even see that your opponent's poaching to change it. However, for a lot of people, that's too late because they're not quick enough or the ball's being mm. hit too hard. So I like I like to do planned poaches in my in my early early age I've started instituting or I started instituting planned poaches. When I plan before I, when I was playing I went on instinct. You know I was like okay I'm gonna go on this one and I could just I could just I just knew which ball to go on. But it was really mostly a decision that I made before the point started. Like I would you know I would say okay my partner has a second serve I'm just gonna take off. So I would just go and. Sometimes they'd go behind me and that was fine. But most of the time it was the surprise element because the ball was moving so fast that I, um, that I had to take off. Right. But, and also planned potions wouldn't have worked on tour because you have, you, I would have to give it away. Like if I, if I left too soon, then they go behind me. Right. Um, but recreational players are not as good as watching the other side of the court when they're hitting. Most people are not focused on the other side while they're striking the ball. It's a very difficult thing to do. To, I mean, pros instructors can do this because they're yeah. playing and watching their students, right? But most people cannot do this. So, so when you plan the poach, you tell your partner, you give them a number behind behind your back. Okay, I'm going to go on the first ball. I'm going to go on the second ball, and then I'm going to go on the third ball. Mm. It should never be more than three because points and doubles. Um, if you've heard Craig Kirk Shaughnessy, like ninety five percent of the points and doubles and Within the first, okay, sixty percent of the points, and in the first four shots, like serve return point after the serve point after the turn point has ended, and then the other another large portion is eight shot rallies, right? So yeah. it's not going to go past that. So you're going to poach in the first, the second, or the third. That means when your opponent is hitting that number ball, you're going to take off, and you have to take off super early. Like you take, I always take off when the ball bounces, and again, you're you're going, your partner's who's in the baseline is covering behind you. And what you're really trying to do is disrupt the person that's hitting the ball, disrupt mm -hmm. your opponent. And you're trying to make them change their mind. Cause we know that in tennis, when you change your mind, 
you're more likely to lose to miss the shot, miss your target than if you stick to your um your original shot. And there's all this data. Like I don't know if you know this, Marvan, but um back in the '80s, Jim Lair did a study on accuracy of players and accuracy specifically to when they change their mind. So what he did was, you know, he had a pro feed balls to, and this is Jim Courier, Andrew Agassi, um, all the guys at IMG Academy. I think David Wheaton was another one and no. um, Martin Blasch. Like okay. really, I think just Jamie might've been a little bit young for this. Okay. So this is like high level players, right? So he would put, ta- he would put targets on the other side of the court, a cross court target, a downline target. And the target would be like the target sign, like a bullseye and then a ring around it and another ring around it. So he would assign points, 10 points for hitting the, the middle, five points, one point, and then zero points if you missed it. So he would feed him, you know, 10 forehands and say, okay, hit these cross court. And they would hit cross court and he would count, okay, 10 for that, five for that, three for that. And he'd get the total number. Then he would say, okay, now when the ball is you're going to do this cross court and do it down the line you get the numbers for the down the line now when the ball's coming i'm going to tell you whether to go cross court or down the line so as the ball's coming he would say cross court down the line cross court down the line so as you can imagine the accuracy decreased because the player didn't know ahead of time which ball he was going to hit but yeah. now what was interesting was he said okay now you're going to hit these cross court but when the ball is coming i'm going to tell you to hit it or down the line whatever they were doing when the ball's coming i'm going to tell you to hit it down the line so now I'm introducing mm-hmm. doubt in your brain. But instead of listening to me, go back with your original thought, which was to hit a cross court. And then when he did that, the accuracy was almost exactly the same as when they didn't change their mind. So the, yeah. the lesson there was when a tennis player changes their mind, they should go with their first instinct because Ooh. that's when you're going to be the most successful. Like, so don't second guess your shot selection. Go with the first instinct. And if the person has poached and you see that they poached, just try to hit the same shot in the same direction, but maybe try to make it a little bit better or a little bit closer to the alley. Uh, but don't change your mind. So, so don'ts on poaching, you know, I don't, there's not very many don'ts on poaching. I mean, if you're going to get super technical, you don't want to turn your shoulders and like, I'll turn, I'll take any poaching to no poaching. Right. But if you want to be picky, don't turn your shoulders and go sideways and you want to move lateral or diagonal rather towards the center strap and not laterally across the court. Those are the two don'ts. But if you, but I prefer you moving laterally and turning your shoulders than not poaching at all. Cause at least sure. you're showing the opponent movement and you're trying to disrupt the opponent and not just exactly. being stationary in the middle of the box. Yeah, exactly. Disturbing the rhythm. Awesome. That's a very cool story. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Sherry. Probably benefited from feeling that the gods were with me and the pain was just unimportant. It's good. It's good. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Susanna, when losing is more common than winning, how do you learn to win? Talk to Jim Lair. <laughs> That's a good question. No, so I think when that happens, I think you need to drop the level of the competition. Mm. So it's very common with players. You know, like when you start playing on the equivalent the of that on tour, as a player going back to the challengers to play against lesser players. So if you're, you know, if you 
keep losing first round and main draw tournaments, go play a tier three event or or a challenger where you're playing yeah. players that are ranked 300 instead of players that are ranked 50, and you'll start winning. So if you're playing 3-5, losing, go play 3-0. And I know you're going to say, no, nah, I don't want to do that because 3-0 is blah, 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 blah. But that's the solution. You have to play against weaker players or go play two fives. So then you win. And if you're four five, go play three fives, whatever it is, four O's, weak four O's. So you get used to winning because winning is a habit, you know, and, um, and then you're also the, your thoughts as you're winning, you develop your thoughts as you're winning too, which you don't develop those when you're losing. So, so that's what I say to that. Go play with worse yeah. players. Awesome. Yeah. Great advice. Definitely. Definitely want to do that uh let's see let's see some more questions could you review the jim lair advice between points then and now then and now not, not sure what that Has means but i can review the well i i so i call this the crave sequence and i don't, don't remember exactly what he called it and i think he had four steps but you'll have to i did a little uh work when i created this product the roadmap to mental dominance and that's what i called it because it kind of made sense of the, five, the things that you should do before the point starts or between points, right? The 25 seconds between points. And it's called Crave for C-R-A-V-E. And it starts with chill, routine, analyze, visualize, execute. So the first thing when the point ends is you have to chill. Whether you won the point or lost the point, chill. It's just one point. doesn't matter. Whether you won or lost, does not matter. The only point that matters is which point, match point, of course. You know, I, I tell players to stat that the, the Percentage of points that the number one player in the world wins. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz right now. He wins 55% of all the points he plays. That means 45% of the time he's he's a loser. Right? So we play in a sport where losing almost half the points in a match and, and you can still win. Right? So it doesn't matter. One point doesn't matter. Chill. Let it go. Won or lost. Don't get so excited about it and don't get upset if you lost it. Unless it was match point. Then the match is over. So first you chill. Then you have to do your routines. As you do your routines include, you know, what do you, where do you what do you do with your strength? Are you looking at the racket? Are you where are your eyes? Uh, are you stepping on the lines or not stepping on the lines? How do you pick up the ball specifically? Pick up the ball the same way every time. Then you're analyzing as you're walking around doing your routines. You're analyzing what happened on the last point. How did I win it? How did I lose it? And then you also want to think about what you're going to do on the next point. Am I going to serve volley, serve stay back, return, come in, etc. Then you have to have a, before the point starts, quick visualization. And the visualization could be you watching yourself hit the serve into a target, or it could be just a positive, a positive self-talk or something, any kind of visualization you want to do, any kind of self-talk that's positive. And then, of course, you have to execute. And to execute, you have to have trigger words. And trigger words are words in your head that elicit some behavior in your body. Like, for example, for me, I knew that under pressure, my left arm on my serve was going to come down mm. ever so slightly. And so I would hit the top of the tape and miss my serve. So my cue word on my serve was left arm up. So I was like, as I was doing my routines and doing my bouncing and all that, my last thought was always left arm up. Now that had a triple benefit. The first one was I'm keeping my left arm up because I'm telling myself to keep my left arm up. Um, because I'm telling myself to keep my left arm up, I can't have a thought I don't want to have. Like I can't be thinking, Oh God, don't double fall. Oh God, it's match point because I'm thinking left arm up. And then the third one, and probably the most important one, is because I'm thinking left arm up on the first point, the second point, the third point, the tenth point, and the match point. Then the match point seems like just another point. 
it doesn't seem like any more important than all the other points. So yeah, those trigger words, whether, and the trigger words usually are derived from something that happens, something, whatever you're working on in your game, it's going to go off under pressure. So whether you're trying to, you know, reach more on your serve or turn your shoulders more or use your legs more or snap the wrist or accelerate, whatever it is you're trying to do, that's what your trigger word should be because under pressure, it will it won't be there for you. So, so that's a long version of the crepe sequence or the short version. Dude, practice awesome, it, man. you know. Practice, 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 and and you know you, at, when you start doing uh, rituals or or routine between points, you have to think about it a lot. But after a while, it becomes a habit, and you're not so much focusing on what you're doing; it you're just doing it without having to think about it. Awesome, love it, love it. Thanks, Gigi. Family fun night. If I'm losing in doubles, I'll often ask my partner if they have any suggestions on strategies, but they look at me with a blank stare. Are there uh, prompts? <laughs> any are there any prompts you would suggest for this conversation, Jenna? Well, it's hard to answer because it depends on where you're losing. You know, are you losing because of bad strategy, or are you losing because you're missing? Are you losing because are you self defeating? Are you defeating yourself, or are the opponents better? Are you playing? the weaker player. So, so I mean, so the, I guess the first question is, should we hit more to another player? Maybe should we hit, isolate that other player? Should we, if you've been staying back, should we ter- try to serve volley? Should we try to come in more to the net? Um, and again, always, always reference these, this, this advice in, in plural. So we should be doing this. Or how about we try to do this or we try to do that. But yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Cause I don't have, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question, but um, that's what I got. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was good. That was good. Uh, let's see, uh, Nancy, good to see you, Gigi. <laughs> Any thoughts on how coaches take players out of the zone? So is that oh, like? I guess that's a problem that you're hey, asking about. Yeah, Maybe. how coaches take players out of the zone? Yeah, stay out of their way. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, sometimes coaches. I mean, I don't think on tour because I think. I'm, I mean, if they do that, they're going to get fired, right? But so I, so I believe for with coaching, like really, less is less is best. Like you don't want to overcoach uh, in a match situation, uh, and they also keep their coaching to, I would say, more like just basic advice, nothing technical. Maybe tact, maybe some tactic change, or maybe some mental help. But don't not like uh, you need to put more topspin on your forehand, like. Terrible. Like, I don't want to know that. Don't tell me that. Now I'm going to worry about my form yeah. instead of worrying about winning the point, which is what I should be worrying about. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, very true. Let's see any other questions. I mean, there are some. Oh, Robbie. Hey, Gigi. Hi, I'm here. Hey, Robbie. The awesome Robbie. We're all here watching at Hershey Racket Club. Love Gigi. Loving Tennis Summit. Love to hear oh, that. Oh, that's great. The yoga master. Yeah, yes. she's great. Jeez, we have man. a little secret that we might have to share with people soon. Oh, yes. Feel free to share Did you that. hear about this? Oh, is it? It's not this, uh, the double summit? Or... Oh, no. We can talk about that later. Oh. No. I think Robbie and I are going on below deck and some other friends. We're, we're going oh, on really? below deck again. Yeah. Whoa. Below, below deck Greece. I'm not supposed to say anything, but we're going on below deck Greece, probably. Whoa. That's insane. In August. Whoa. Yeah. Wow! If anybody wants to go, we we have one spot left. Anybody want to go? Or maybe two? I forget one or two. Yeah. If you you have twenty thousand dollars and you want to go to below deck, Greece, email me. 
<laughs> oh boy, twenty. Maybe after the summer. Uh, let's yeah. see. That's, <laughs> that's that's really cool. Super cool. Um, let's see. Oh shoot! Actually, um, I should have asked you this before, Gigi. Uh, do you have to go pretty soon? I know it's one. No, o'clock. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Okay. Have a two. Okay. Okay. Awesome. I that's appreciate it. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, Philip, uh, I have trouble with my doubles players staying a positive with each other and not saying this like, we'll just move along and we'll stop losing. Yeah. I mean, it's a common question, but use what uh, the techniques Gigi mentioned earlier and, and you'll be okay. Let's see. Macy, thank you for doing these Q&A. So helpful. Philip, yes, thank you. We, not you. There you go. She's You're getting it we um framing you know the advice and whatnot um gg that's a great strategy i think again referencing that um philip i think we mentioned this already the 20 the focus on 25 seconds so definitely rewind although i know you asked that a little while ago so you might have heard it already um the answer any chance you're going to do a soak uh socal clinic from steve oh i've done so many clinics in uh southern <laughs> cal i don't know probably eight or ten of them so at Indian Wells is a good option, Steve. I, I do camps in Indian Wells every year. They're very popular. If you want to get into those camps, go to gfernandestanis.com and find the camps page, Indian Wells, and fill in a form that's their interest form. There's a long list of people um, that have been trying to get on, and I'm kind of getting through it. So we do, I do three or four camps every year. Uh, I have a goal to hit all 50 states. Uh, with my G Method clinics, uh, I'm doing Mississippi and Alabama uh, this month, actually in a couple of weeks, and Nashville in June. And after that, I'll have 37 down and 13 to go. So that's been a fun, fun challenge um, and fun wow. goal that I'm going to someday finish achieving. So, wow, dang, that's super SoCal cool. Indian Wells next March. Sweet. Awesome. Love Indian Wells. Sparks, Sky, how do partners decide who should play the ad side or the do side? Yeah, I talked about that a little bit. First of all, the best player should play the ad side. No, unless you're playing no ad, the best player should play the ad side. If you're even, out, I talked about um, having the strong ground strokes on the outside and the weak volleys mm. also on the outside. So weak back and volleys. So the back and volleys in the alley and you want your strong ground strokes on the outside. Gotcha. So I guess just to, you know, give you a scenario again, like, so if you have one player who has like a much stronger forehand uh, than his back and whereas the other person, he or she, um, like is, you know, equally strong forehand and backhand. However, I mean, let's just say the, for this example, the male player is, is stronger. So, and the male player like likes the do side, whatever, but like if the male player is stronger, but has a weaker back end, would you still, put the uh the mail on the the ad side or well depends on what depends on how close they are like if if the guys and and can the if we're playing mixed doubles can the woman return the guy's serve that's Mm. the determining factor because you have a woman who cannot return the other guy's serve and you put her in the ad side you're going to lose the match Mm. no question you're going to lose the match because if you can't break and you can't win your points on the on that side on the tie break if there's no breaks you how are you going to win Right, yeah, I mean, you might yeah. get lucky and win, but if you, if the if the girl cannot return the guy's serve, then she needs to play the do side. Gotcha. Otherwise, gotcha. you're relying on the guy double holding on game point to win a game. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. Let's see, Jay, uh, 
it looks like stroke techniques, especially for I'm not sure what that was referring to. It's a while back, but um, <laughs> hey, from Taiwan, so cool to see everyone from different places. Wow, hey, Woody, what's up? Oh, okay. Uh, Jason, it seems the forehand technique has changed from the time in the 90s and now. Do you agree? And do you suggest your students to mimic prose strokes? Wait, what? Can you repeat that? Sorry. Yeah, it says, um, so it seems that the forehand technique has changed from before, from the 90s to now. So first question is, do you agree? And then second is, do you suggest your students to mimic the prose strokes? Yes. Yes, I agree. And yes, I agree with all of it because... Back in the day when I was playing, um, we didn't have the string technology that is available today or the racket technology even. So so the strokes are a little more linear or f a little bit flatter than they are today because we couldn't generate the spin that they're generating today because of the, we didn't have the string technology. So if you want, I mean, if it's for a high level player, then you definitely want to, you know, sort of follow modern, modern technology, but all, or modern teaching tactics, but also the movement, you know, like the whole, Open stance in my generation, I didn't learn open stance when I was playing or when I was growing up. I learned it on tour, but but open stance is now the way to hit every stroke because it saves one, two, or three steps on the recovery, right? So both moving so fast, you really have no choice but to hit open stance. Yeah, it's definitely evolved for a reason. Um, makes sense for us to to mimic. Um, you know, if we're physically capable. Uh, Chris, how do you find the balance between hitting? through the ball and brushing up on any given shot? Great question. Well, brushing, you know, like I don't think of brushing up. I don't like that. Um, mm. I mean, you kind of have to brush up, but it's the brushing up is happening as a result of the swing path of the racket, right? The racket's coming from high to low. And as you're moving through, then you're going to generate spin. But But I'm not thinking of, brushing up like if you're trying to mimic rafa's boogie whip or whatever they call his friend like don't like that's just not a normal thing that most human beings can do but but um but really of the two if you're following through on the shot and you're coming from low to high you should get the spin that you need without think having to think of brushing through gotcha thanks gg uh, let's see some comments. Joy, such great psychological, mental, and practical info. Thank you, Gigi. Definitely agree, Joy. Uh, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. I've played two singles matches recently where I started very strong, but eventually I couldn't maintain that level and lost. It seemed more mental than physical. And any mental game advice for mid-match? Mm, that's a very common, common error. And people, it's not that it's an error. It's that also there, there's all this mental... I guess a game at play. Um, you know, what happens when you're up a set and say a break, so you're up on the first set and you're winning the second, is that now your opponent relaxes. Because see you get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm gonna lose. So then the pressure comes goes off them and oftentimes they raise their level. So the really the key is to as the mat as the match starts and continues, that you always want to be thinking of increasing your own intensity. So you want to increase, always increase your intensity in a match. Whether you won the set, lost the set, it always needs to be in an upward spiral. Because as soon as it levels, like if you think, I got, I'm in a good level, I'm going to stay here. But what's happening is like, they're going to start getting better, right? So now, unless you start getting better with them and matching their intensity, then they're going to start playing better than you. So, so the key is to 
Um, and it's not to play better as the match progresses, but to raise the intensity, to raise your focus, to raise your your uh, concentration levels, and and to continue that in an upward spiral as the ma- as the match progresses. Then then you, you then it's impossible to have a letdown because you're trying to always increase. That's right, intensity so huge. Uh, hey Emma, hey guys, so happy I got on here live with you. Appreciate it and looking forward to our live on Saturday as well. Um, that'll be really fun. Let's see, David. I would like to know when you are about to hit a shot. When is the last time you look at your opponent to see where they are moving? Oh, um, well, I wish people would tell me their rating when they ask these questions because this is mm. a rave dependent. Like, I, I'm a bad example of this because obviously I'm highly skilled right? yes <laughs> um like when when people were like if somebody was doing eye formation on me i could wait for them to go one way or the other before i'd made my decision wow. but that wasn't always successful right but i i could a lot of the times wait for them to go one way or the other so i'm so as that ball is being served i have my eye on the ball but i also have this peripheral vision or the, the ability to see almost two things at once so i could see what the server did after they served it, did they take a step to the right or to the left? And then did the net person move and go one way or the other? And then I would hit my shot in the other direction. So I could kind of hold it, hold it, hold it. And then last minute, just kind of flick it one way or the other. But that's really hard to do. So um, so to answer your question, uh, when is the last time you look at your opponent? Really, you should be watching the ball. And depending on how hard the ball is coming, so if it's a floater, you know, it's like you have a little more time and you can kind of peek over there, um, yeah. peek. But I, I'm a little concerned with this question because um, I don't know his rating and I don't know, you know, what, what taking your eye off the ball is generally for most recreational players a recipe for disaster. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's tough to say, yeah, because I was, I think probably people would think like, you know, you watch the ball until the opponent hits it and then you start tracking the ball. But I guess there's like, yeah, you know, like you said, DV, it depends like what level and like what type of shot. Even. Hard, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All these things. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, yeah. if you're sitting on a bounced overhead and you're like looking at the balls bouncing, you're waiting to hit it. You can kind of see where they're going and then you hit it. That's yeah. the thing, right? If you, if you have a sitter forehand, you know, the ball's sitting there and you're going to decide if you're going to go across or down the line. You can kind of watch mm-hmm. them and see if they're running one way or the other and you hit it the other way. But I'll yeah. tell you a really funny, I'll tell you a, a really, I don't know, interesting, sad story in my life about changing right. my mind on a shot. Um, mm-hmm. And it was in the 1994 Wimbledon semifinal. I was playing Martina Navratilova, who was 38 at the time. I started out really nervous. Like first, I lost the first four games, first Wimbledon semi ever. Um, then I started coming back, lost the first at six, four and I'm five, two in the cert in the second cert, second set, serving for the set at five, three. And she was tired. She was tapped. I mean, she was 38 and she'd had a long week playing doubles too. And, and I think, you know, if I win the set, I'm in the third set, I have a really good chance of making the Wimbledon final. And I serve in Bali, hit it out wide and I'm coming in. I have a fairly makeable high level sort of shoulder level for him, Bali. Mm-hmm. And I have an open court cross court volley. She's a lefty, so she's she would be running down to chase a backhand. Yeah. And as I'm hitting that shot, just about as I was starting to hit the shot, I see her take off to cover it. And uh, I just changed my mind and went down the line. Mm. And I the ball hit the tape, went up in the air, hit the tape again, 
went up in the air, hit the tape again, <laughs> seemed like slow motion, and landed on my oh, side of the court. No. And that was to win the second set. If I had not, ch- if I have one shot I regret in my life, it's that shot. Because if I hit that shot cross court, I probably would be a Wimbledon champion because I would have played Conchita Martinez in the finals and I had good chances against her. So, um, so yeah, my one shot regret <laughs> out of a whole career, I have one shot regret that I can remember. Uh, Appreciate yeah. you bringing that up, even though it's painful. I, I would just try yeah. to forget about that. <laughs> but, you know, it happens. No, you know, I didn't remember. I, I actually didn't remember this until actually Pete Freeman sent me this video of my of the Wimbledon final. And I, I knew that I had the set point. I, I really knew I had the set point. But when I, and I, when I saw it, I'm like, oh, why did I change my mind? And then I, it all came back. It's like, oh, God, I remember this point now. You know, it's like. Keep it, go with your first instinct. Never change yeah. your mind. Lesson there again. Yeah, smart. Yeah. It's all good. Let's see what other questions. I mean, we have a lot of thank yous, which is awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem, Woody. Um, hey, Gigi, remember, Ryan, thanks for doing this. And all right, Ryan, right. Ryan, Ryan's awesome. Obviously, he was at um, you know, TennisCon Live. And we, we had a live stream earlier today, and Ryan was talking about how he changed what he taught in terms of um, – when when the serve goes to the inside stroke where uh like that ball is tends to go more down the line like he actually used to teach differently i think where where he thought that that would that you shouldn't i forgot what exactly what he said but no, I know has he exactly, talked to you about oh that oh my god i am yeah. so happy that that i'm yeah, hearing yeah. this ryan you have no idea yeah. how excited i am so so we're talking about inside shots and doubles and inside shots yeah. is a shot that you hit from the inside of the court so if you're in the outside and you have a forehand a forehand cross court goes into the alley, into your, the alley in front of you, right? So most, a lot of coaches coach that's a poachable ball, but it is on tour because this ball is hit so hard that players are late and you can try to poach that. But if you don't have a huge serve, someone can you know hit that step in and hit a cross court into the alley and you're toast. So that's sort of one of the sort of differentiators of one of several things that I teach differently than, than most people so I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks for, for And the other thing that I'm working hard to convince coaches is stop telling players to recreational players to follow the ball because you really should not mm. be following the ball. You should just mm. stay in the middle of the box and let the opponent try to hit a backhand down the line into their alley, into your alley. It is the lowest percentage shot in tennis. They're going to make it one out of 10 times if they're four or five or above, they're going to make it one out of 10 times. If they're four or below, they're if maybe once in a while, you're going to make this shot from the baseline. If you're standing in the baseline. Now, if you're standing on the service line, different story, then you got to watch it. But, you know, the problem with recreational players is like, or, you know, three, five, four players, like when they start to follow the ball, they don't know where to stop. So mm-hmm. the ball goes that way, they keep going that way. And now we have a situation where one person scoring the alley and the other person scoring 90% of the court. So I'm I'm still working on it. I'm still working on sharing um, with more my instruction with more people, so people really understand the game of doubles better. And that's my mission in life: more more people teaching good doubles. Good stuff. Yeah, it's a great mission. Very sorely needed. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Angel, miss you this am yet to Ryan. Yeah, just watch the replay for sure. Maggie Ola from Acapulco, Gigi Mirban. Where oh. do you? Oh, this is a great question because we had some discussions about this with both Brent and Ian, and they had like sort of different opinions, although they could probably come to a middle ground. But when do you look at your partner while playing the point at the net? My partner? 
Yeah. So I guess like you're at the net, you know, like, so the, the questions we had was like primarily like when there was a serve to your partner, like, are you looking back at them? You know what I mean? Or like, when do you look Wait, back? They, at didn't, them? They, they, didn't gr- they didn't agree what I'm going to pick on them now. What, what were they saying? So, um, so Brent said that he, he likes to look at his partner, like when the partner's returning so that he knows like what type of shot is, is going to like uh, come about um from the return and like he you know he cited brian brothers and whatnot ian was more in the camp of that you don't look back and you look at the the players in front of you and then i guess there was some talk about like well who's brent do i know brent well brent abel from uh, web tennis um he's he's pretty good players like got like 14 he's also 85 years old right isn't he like super old i don't know how old he is he looks young though i mean for his age whatever it is but sorry brent i don't know if i'm gonna pick on brent uh, I 100% disagree with turning around and looking at your partner because if you turn, if you watch your, your the opposing net player, okay, the ball, so you're returning, right? Your partner's returning, rather. The ball has crossed your the net, right? Mm-hmm. And if you watch the opposing net player, that's all you need to know because if they move, then you know that you have to be ready. You know that your partner's hit a bad shot, right? But if they don't move, you don't need to watch your partner. The problem with watching your partner is that you you can't see your opponent and you have to see your opponent. You have to see if your opponent is going to poach or not poach so you can be ready. Um, so I so what, that's why when you ask that question, I'm like, when do I look at my partner? I've never in my life looked at my partner. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I might glance, right? Yeah. But, is that what but Brian Brothers do? Brian Brothers? They don't, like- there's no way the Brian Brothers are turning and watching. I can promise you that. And in fact, okay. next time they come to my camp oh, yeah. which we do every yeah, February yeah. we can ask them um because the other thing is how in tune are you with your partner like I knew when the ball was coming what kind of shot Natasha was going to hit without having to look at her like mm-hmm. I knew if if it if it was a really wide serve and she was going to be stretched I already knew I needed to move to the center because she might hit it down the line and I'd have to cover the middle right I knew if it was coming to her body she was going to hit it inside out I knew if it was mm-hmm. she was stretched on the backhand she was probably going to lock like I knew uh, and also I could tell the other thing I could tell is when the ball, when she hit her return and the ball was passing me over here, right to my right. Cause I was on the outside when the ball was passing me, I could tell if I was a good shot or not a bad shot. And I can start to see that when the ball is even with me and I'm standing in the service line and I see this ball. Okay. Where's this ball? Is it low or is it high? If it's high, I'm like, um, shit, I got to back up. <laughs> if it's low, I'm going forward. Right. Yeah. So at no point in that, did I turn and watch her Gotcha. for the most part? Gotcha. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but for the most part, I was definitely watching the court. Gotcha. Sorry, Brent, gotcha. but that's okay. You know, for him, it could work. And for some people it yeah. could work, but for me, it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great to get the perspective. Um, obviously, uh, let's see. Okay. Kate. Hey, Kate. Hi, Gigi. What if your partner keeps hitting out missing and they are now targeting her? How do you help her? Yeah, that's mm. tough because, you know, and so Way one back. thing you could do if you're one up, one back and you're, yeah, it, you're, and your partner's missing, like go back to the baseline with her and maybe try to take the middle balls. And then, um, then when the ball comes to you, then have her run to the net, right? So now you're in the back and, and she's up. So, and then, so if they hit the ball to her, now she's at the net, which, you know, presumably she was missing ground strokes, right? So, so that's what I'd say to that. Like, if somebody's missing from the ground strokes, then bring her back. If they're missing volleys, 
I'm sorry, if they're missing ground strokes, bring her up. If they're missing volleys, bring him back. So try to take him away from the shot they've been missing. Gotcha. Thanks, Gigi. Um, Raquel, Rich, when are you coming to Oregon? We need you. I haven't been to Oregon. That's one of my spots. No, wait, I've been to Oregon. I, I was in Portland. Um, yeah, I already did Oregon. That's, that one's marked off. But I'm coming to Idaho, which I haven't done that one. Um, so that's Ooh. close to Oregon as I'm going to get in the near future. And I think I'm coming hopefully to Montana in October. Oh, cool. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. Hello to Jim. Jim has a question. Can you address doubles tactics based upon age, ability, and opponents? Ooh. Coaches in oh, well, drills. We, we, need a, we need another hour session for that one. That would be the topic of our next live stream. Um, the, the next entire tennis summit will be about that question. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and check out Gigi's double or summit. Or go, yeah, buy the Gigi method or come to white camps or come to the double summit. Or That's a yeah. loaded question, Jim. Let's see the second part. Uh, coaches in drills give the same advice yeah, to all 12, whether you're 69 with bad knees or 30 years speedster. Bad advice. No. So, yeah, certainly it's different. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely different. Yeah, 100%. You know, one of the things that, that's uh, different, I, I feel, about the G method is that it's really modified for the for recreational players. Like, you know, what I call the G method, which is how I think doubles should be played. It's not how I played on tour, not entirely, because I could do things that, you know, the way I covered the court was a little bit different than, you know, now I cover the court at 60, right? So you have to definitely coach to the, to the ability or agility but more than the ability, the agility of the player. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got a little distracted because <laughs> did you hear the news? So when you mentioned Boise State, boy, the men's team at Boise State, like they're going, they're going to be penalized or have been because the assistant coach was paying like other players like two thousand dollars per recruit or something like that. It's crazy. I thought that was allowed now. I don't know. It says according to this article, it says that they were. Yeah, it's a violation, so I don't know. Um, anyway, sorry, it's so random. Um, let's see. Thanks, guys. Ni hao, Taiwan. Cool. Um, let's see. Angel, thank you so much, Gigi Mirvan. Oh, okay. Jerry, I do not hear this question or did not hear it. If you lose your toss mid-game, what should you do? Is there a good strategy in this case besides focus, i.e. have two serve movements? Oh, uh, wow. If you lose your toss mid-game. So toss routines are important like like where where are you tossing the ball what are you thinking about in your toss like i used to um follow the path of the post or some people like the brian brothers teach follow the path of the baseline so you need to have some type of guide to um to help you and i think that if you do that you shouldn't lose it because if you're always following the path of the post and always throwing up the ball the same way in the same way in the same way then if you lost your toss then then it would be a mental issue, not a physical issue. So, um, so yeah, find a guide, find find a a path to your arm that will help you uh, get it started. Got awesome, thanks, Gigi. Uh, let's see, Jim's three five, just for reference. Okay, cool, cool. Um, let's see, Ash in doubles, a lefty righty combo. Lefty is stronger than righty. In no ad high performance junior match, who should take the deuce and ad side? Thank you. Easy. If it's no ad, the you won the forehand volleys in the middle. So that Brian Brothers model, right? I mean, the Brian Brothers changed the way uh, righty lefty combinations play doubles. Before the Brian Brothers, mm. all all righty lefty combinations had 
the uh, the lefty on the outside, Martina, Mark Woodford and Top Woodbridge, Martina and Pam McEnroe, and whoever he was playing, Rod Laver, what other lefties? Um, all always on the left side, on the ad side, lefties on the ad side. The Brian Bros were the first team to switch that, and why? Because of technology. So again, when on before tech, before the advent of you know carbon rackets and poly strings, if you served, if I served, still in my generation, it was like that. If I had a lefty playing the do side, I would serve wide to the their backhand every single serve, and it was nearly impossible to hit that return cross court. It would be nearly impossible for them to hit that return cross court past the net player. So my partner would just poach on every ball, and the only thing they could do was lob, lob the return. With the advent of this new technology now, you know, anybody could be laid on a backhand and just like flick it cross court. So people were start getting really good about flicking backhands cross court, taking it early on the rise and and just using the technology in the racket to, to hit the ball early and hit it cross court. So if the lefty can return a wide backhand with any kind of success, then they should be there. So we have the forehand volleys in the middle. If they cannot, then you got to reverse it. But now you got the backhand volleys in the middle, which is not great. Rick gotcha. Leach was another example of a great mm. doubles player who uh, mostly played the outside. outside. Or did he play the gotcha. outside? I think, he, was, I think mm. he played the outside. I don't remember. I can't remember either. I think he's in our area, uh, Mid Atlantic. But um, okay, let's see. David, I'm a 4 Of course, you want to watch ball. Yep. But I'm guessing I'm asking to see where I can oh. eventually. Which um, one was that? What? That was about watching to... the opponent. So he's a four zero. Oh yeah. yeah so, less... so so that I mean, it's hard to answer that. It's hard. I can't give you a precise moment because really, I was talking about the peripheral vision. Like there's there's a two visions. There's the focus on the ball with this understanding of what's happening peripherally. So to, so to me, that's more like a peripheral vision answer like you're watching the ball but you're aware of your surroundings or you're aware of what the other person's doing without actually having to look over there at them yeah yeah definitely um let me see who else hasn't asked a question um well i'll just put ryan up real, real quick learned a lot from Gigi, and i was so glad to hear her instructions and change what i taught based on her teachings thanks Gigi. you gotta love it you know, there's a lot of coaches who are, you know, stuck to the ways and whatnot, but you just learn and refine. Thank you, Ryan. So. I appreciate that. Yeah, Ryan. Awesome. Chris, do you adjust your swing path on every shot or is it pretty consistent regardless of ball pace, height, etc.? cetera? Hmm. No, I, I don't. I mean, what you want to do is adjust your body for the most part, right? You have to move your body. So, so you have your ideal strike zone. For most people, it's somewhere around your waist. You know, waist level, maybe a little bit above, depending on your grip. But and then so you move your body so that when you get to the ball, you're in that ideal zone. So that what pros are really good at becoming little robots. So everything's the same, everything's the same. What changes is um where the ball is. And then so then you'll have your high balls that you're gonna take early and you try to avoid low balls, really try to avoid hitting balls at your shoe tops or below the knees. So move your body to get to to the right spot. Yeah. Just a couple more minutes before I have to take off. Yeah, yeah, no. A couple more totally, questions. Totally. Uh, thanks for the advice. No problem. Uh, what can I say as a coach to a high school player who is going to play against a superior player? Well, you fun? got nothing to lose, right? Yeah. I mean, I always say there's three, three types of situations that you face. You're better than your opponent, you're worse than your opponent, you're even with your opponent. 
depending on these three, you adjust your risk level. If you're better than your opponent, you take no chances. You're going to win. You're better. Even if they get on a hot streak, you just keep telling yourself, I'm better. I'm going to win. If you're worse than your opponent, then you got to take all kinds of chances because otherwise you're going to lose. Just go for it. Go for your shots. You have nothing to lose. And then if you're even with your opponent, then you have to modify when you take risk and when you don't take risk. And when you don't take risk on the big points, because tennis is a game of errors, 60, 60 to 70% of all the points in doubles end in an error. So you don't want to be making an error by trying a low percentage shot on a big point. The big points are, of course, game point. The, the fourth point of... The fourth point of the game, 30-50, I'm sorry, the third point of the game, 30, wait, is that? Fourth point of the game, 30-15, 15-30, 40 love, love 40 point. That's a big point. It's a swing point in a game. And also the first point of the game. Um, because if you win the first point of the game, you're like 78% more likely to win that game than if you lose it. And also because the the changeovers in recreational tennis or or even pro tennis are, and, and recreational tennis are tend to be social, but in pro tennis too, like there's a break in the action. So you have, your mind has been at ease for a minute or 30 seconds, however long your changeover is. So you have to get back in it. So I always want to play that point with intensity, like it's a big point and not make a, a silly, a silly mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. G I know we've hit one thirty, so I'll let you go, but, um, I really appreciate your time and everybody's questions. This was super fun. And as we predicted, like, you know, <laughs> we still have questions, Long. but we got to end. Yeah, let me just say, yeah. can I say two things? Yeah, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah I just sure. have two things coming up. Um, so I'm, I'm doing less teaching, um, and more experiential travel. Um, I do, I will have the double summit, that, uh, in November. And this is like sort of the one camp where, People can come and um, learn the G method from me. It's in Tampa, and it this one has on court, off court. So I have Mark Kovacs and a couple of sports psychologists. We ha- we try to approach the complete player and what you need to be doing so that you're not just good at tennis, but you have to be good off the court and et cetera, et cetera. That and then the other thing that I that I'm uh, talking about is the Labor Cup. Like if anybody wants to go to the Labor Cup, I I'm a G. Fernandez Tennis is official North America travel partner. So hopefully if you are going, you want to come with me. Um, super fun. Like at London, everybody got pictures with every player except for Roger. Roger was impossible to get to, but everybody got pictures with just about every player um, that played at the, at the Labor Cup. So um, if, uh, any you know, if that Labor Cup's in your plans or you want to do a doubles camp in the fall, bring your friends. Uh, this camp is here in Tampa and it's super fun so hopefully i get to meet some of you guys in person uh and of course we'll have the tennis con live if you want to work with Marban next year again we'll do that and that's in uh it'll probably be again in that march time frame yeah definitely definitely right. I, I i have family in vancouver so i'm going to try to get to the labor cup so hopefully i can see you there at some great some point. yeah that'd be cool well, let's so. talk if you're coming let's let's uh call me afterwards we'll talk about that oh uh, sure sure awesome um right. again uh, thanks so much, Gigi and everybody. This was so much fun. And yeah, we'll we'll see you at the next live stream tomorrow. But I uh, hope you have a great day and enjoy the rest of the summit. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. I hope you really enjoyed this discussion, uh, this Q&A session with Gigi Fernandez. A really fun one. I always love doing those because uh, you get questions on the fly. The guests uh, just, you know, answers through all of them. Um, the experience that they've had. So uh, really fun. And um, 
If you enjoyed this one, I would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tense Files podcast, and you can do that at tensefiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app that you use to listen to the show. I also want to leave you with a quote, and this one is by uh, Lena or Lena Dunham. And Lena said, it is interesting how often we can't see all the ways in which we are being strong. It's a really deep quote there. I hope that I didn't mispronounce Lena's name too badly. Um, but in any case, yeah, I hope you all just uh, continue to strive to um, figure out what it is that's maybe keeping you from reaching the next level and then just putting a game plan together and improving that. So that's the best feeling when you do finally get uh, a solution going to your issues. So with that, uh, I look forward to seeing you, you on the next episode of the podcast. Have a great one and see you then. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.